This is Cutthroat American High School Politics. I'm Esteban Clark Mendel. This is the second of two conversations I have regarding the race for Michigan's third congressional district. In this conversation, I talked to Peter Meyer, the Republican candidate, about his beliefs regarding our immigration system, our health care system, and how the seat has been represented by Justin Amash. I want to start off with a relatively easy question, a question you've probably received many times. Um, this, I believe, is your first time running for political office. Yes. Why specifically this office, especially an important seat like the Michigan's third district? And also, why now? Yeah, well, thank you for that question. And thank you for having me on it, Stavon. Um, I would say the an answer of, of why in kind of reverse order, why the third district? Because this is home. Uh, I was born here. Um, I went to preschool, elementary school, middle school, high school. Uh, it's where, you know, my family goes back four generations, um, back to my, my great grandfather, uh, who started Meyer with my grandpa, Fred, you know, that was here in the third district here in West Michigan. Um, so the reason why the third district is because it's home. Uh, the, the question of why Congress It's because my background is in the military humanitarian aid disaster response. I spent three years between Iraq as a soldier, Afghanistan as a conflict analyst for the humanitarian aid community, uh, South Sudan, the Philippines as a disaster responder. You know, I've seen uh, what happens when things fall apart. I've seen how challenging it is to make order out of chaos um, when you have a disaster or a conflict occur. Um, and I've also seen on the flip side of how West Michigan is a place that has continued to build and strengthen the ties within our community. Now, it's not perfect. There's a lot of progress we have yet to make. Um, but taking that vantage point and frankly, that, that gratitude and appreciation for how fragile things are, for how much we need to protect what we've inherited, you know, to be stewards of that for future generations, while at the same time fulfilling the promise of the preamble, you know, that this is an ever more perfect union. Um, what can we do to improve upon, you know, what we've inherited? And all too often I see a politics that's focused on consumption, uh, that's focused on how can we be consuming everything in this moment, whether that is from a natural resources point of view, whether it's from a fiscal point of view, whether it's just from a, a social and cultural bandwidth standpoint, everything has become so short term. And we need folks who are looking out for the long term, who are, who are keeping in mind when they're making policies today, not just the impact it will have on the next election, but what that will mean for the country 5, 10, 15, 50 years down the road. And that's something I'm not seeing in our politics, and that needs to change. And that's one of the deepest reasons why I'm running for this office. I want to cover um, one of the most important topics in this election season in general, something that you have talked about, your opponent has talked about, and politicians all around the country have talked about, which is immigration and border security. Now, you mm -hmm. stated on your website that you are in favor of building a physical barrier on our southern border. Um, mm -hmm. That's an idea that many Democrats... Uh, contest. Why do you believe that a border wall will effectively secure our border? So, and, and when you say that an idea that many Democrats contest, you'll also have to look at the timeline because up until five years ago, that was a broadly bipartisan view uh, that was pretty widely held. Um, you know, now obviously we've seen notions of, of freedom of movement kind of slip into the mainstream. It's something my uh, or inherent freedom of movement, something my opponent has advocated for. Uh, I mean, one of the biggest reasons is just the fact that um, 
in order to have um, any you know reasonable economy, you need to be able to control the goods or the flow of goods into it. Uh, you need to be able to regulate um, the flows of goods. Every country does that. In order to make sure that we have um, an understanding of, of who's in our country, who's coming in and for what reason, you need to have a way to regulate the flow of people as well. Um, now, obviously, if you look at the numbers and there's reasonable arguments to be made that there are more folks coming in and overstaying on tourist visas um, than you know, coming across the border. That may be true in some cases with some demographics. Uh, but the bottom line is I want us to fix our broken immigration system. You look at how convoluted and complex it can be. Uh, it, it fails folks who are seeking a legal process. Right? So to me, it has to be a two-pronged approach. Um, on the one hand, making the legal system workable and functional, because right now it is not. I've seen, uh, I've been, my wife um, is an immigrant. This will actually be her first presidential election she can vote in. She's a new citizen. Uh, her, both of her parents, this is their first election, except for the primary. This is their first general election they can vote in, period. And I've seen how torturous the process is that they've gone through. Um, so to me, it's just not as simple as, you know, building a wall, erecting a barrier. I mean, that's going to be part of it. And I think the, the focus on um, the, the democratic objection on that front to me feels very disingenuous and just reactionary rather than thinking through, okay, if we have a more fulsome process, we need to make sure that we are controlling the legal flow, but we also need to have that legal flow. Uh, right now, we have a, a process that is it's central planning at its worst. It's overly convoluted, it's overly complex. Uh, and frankly, it's not something that's befitting a superpower in the 21st century. Um, I could talk about immigration for hours. We do have a limited time, so I do want to move to healthcare because I'm trying to cover as many topics as possible. Of course. Now, you have also stated that you, um, you've actually signed a pledge to repeal the ACA. Um, many people argue that when Republicans say repeal and replace, they don't have a plan to replace the ACA with. Uh, I've made do the you, same argument. Yeah. Okay, then what would you propose we repeal and replace the ACA with? Well, it's so a one thing I'll, I'll say from the outset is anytime I've talked about the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, um, the ACA, uh, I've stated that anything that's going to replace it needs to be sure to protect pre-existing conditions. Uh, that's one of the most widespread lies across our politics today is that any Republican objection to any component of the Affordable Care Act, and part of my objection is that it's failed to live up to its affordability component, uh, a promise, any objection is equated to, you know, wanting to rip away pre-existing conditions, which is just, it's not only misleading, it's not only deceptive, it's just a flat-out lie. Um, the question of, of what to, and, and sorry, and on your point, um, I've been frustrated by my own party that we have we have been pounding the table on repeal and replace without gaining confidence and trust that we have a workable replacement that can come and backfill it. If the Affordable Care Act went away tomorrow, I'm not confident that my party has something that would be functional, practical, and workable to come in on day one. Now, I'll also kind of go a little bit broader picture and say my other frustration is that um, too often the Democrats right now are conflating questions of constitutionality, which are a bit more objective, with 
objecting to the policy goals set out by a piece of legislation. There's an easy way to not have the, the pearl clutching and the hand wringing about whether or not the Affordable Care Act might be struck down on constitutional grounds, and that's to pass a version that doesn't rely on the same uh, manipulative levers in order to enact um, certain components, right? Because a lot of the ways that the Affordable Care Act was initially passed um, and through the budget reconciliation process, uh, there's some strong ongoing questions of whether or not that was a constitutional process. So you have to set aside the procedural arguments from the substantive or the outcome oriented arguments as well. Uh, my, my underlying frustration is that if you look at the three from a, from a top level standpoint, and I can riff on this for a little bit because I think it'll be helpful in a few other areas. If you look at the three areas of you know the broad cost of living uh, buckets that have seen the most uh, wild increases uh, on a year to year basis, you know, far outstripping inflation, it's been healthcare, housing, and education, right? And then you look at the three most heavily regulated and the three most heavily subsidized parts of our economy, and it's healthcare, housing, and education. There's this, there's this democratic fallacy that if we subsidize something, we'll help make it more affordable. And that may be true in the short term, but in the long term, the market adjusts and it adjusts upwards. And the greater the degree of subsidization, the less you ultimately have folks competing and seeking to make a profit off of adding value, creating more efficient processes, improving outcomes, they end up competing solely off of getting government revenue streams. And this is incredibly damaging in the education sector, especially in the higher education sector. But we've also seen this in, um, and I've seen this in, in housing as well. Um, you look at the, what, what may be very, in, in housing, um, oftentimes, um, you know, rent control or, or access to low income or low income and affordable housing kind of very specific definitions depending on where we are um, geographically. But it's usually off of a percentage of the average median income within that census designated tract. Um, and, and very often, if you are below 60% or 80% of that median income, that AMI, um, you know, there is a suite of housing opportunities available. Um, if you're above 150 or 200%, then you can afford some of the really high prices in that area. What happens is a lot of folks in that missing middle crunch, you know, those who are anywhere from, from 80% to 120% of AMI, they end up, you know, either not have being priced out, being priced out of, you know, market-based housing or not qualifying for subsidized or below market housing, right? And we see the similar thing arising with uh, the Affordable Care Act as well. Uh, some of the, the, the subsidy structures in order to allow somebody to buy in, um, again, depending on where your, where your income level is, it may be fully subsidized, but if you were just outside of that bracket, you know, you're seeing premiums that could be upwards of 40% of, of your take home, right? And that's not even starting to get into the high deductible. So my, my overarching theme is one of governmental humility of realizing that um, the federal government trying to come up with ever more convoluted and complex plans is only going to incentivize these industries to come up with ever more complex ways of figuring out how they can profit and I don't have an issue with folks profiting. If the profit is adding value, if the profit is adding efficiency, if the profit is leading to a better outcome, but in a highly regulated industry or sector, that profit 
does not do that. That profit is allowing lines that the government is doing. Now, there, there's a very good argument, and this is why I'm emphatic and pounding the table when it comes up, when it comes down to um, the protection of pre-existing conditions, that the market alone will not protect pre-existing conditions. And I'm not making an argument for no governmental intervention. I think the governmental intervention needs to be at the outward bounds to correct for market distortions, such as um, the discrimination against folks with pre-existing conditions. That's where the governmental intervention should come in. It should try to make sure that we are minimizing um, or, or eliminating opportunities for otherwise social harm. The challenge is when the government intervention is so pervasive that you essentially have a, a for-profit but taxpayer subsidized enterprise. And that's great if you're a pharmaceutical company, that's great if you're a medical device manufacturer. Um, it can be a wash if you're a hospital network, it's great if you're an insurance carrier, uh, but it's not great if you're an American trying not to get bankrupted by your healthcare costs. We look at our system, we look at similar systems around the world, and there's a reason why we are paying more out of pocket and getting on average worse outcomes. Um, and my biggest frustration is that the on the left, it's, well, you know, we tried a little bit of government intervention or a little bit more government intervention and made the problem worse. And then taking their takeaway from that is, well, the solution is a maximalist approach to governmental intervention, right? A little bit of poison didn't kill the patient or didn't cure the patient. So why don't we just overdose on the poison that's putting it down a bad path to begin with? Um, now, in terms of a replacement plan, and again, this is where the Republican Party needs to be a party of ideas, a party of solutions. It's not enough to just sit there and say, no, this is bad. I don't like this. Um, we can't just be a, a, a reactionary minority party. We need to be one that's saying, listen, let's look at what's functioned and worked well in this country. And it's, it's proposals, it's concepts built on the foundation of limited government on economic freedom of individual liberty. And limited government doesn't always mean no government. You know, it can mean if it can be done at a lower level, like the concept of subsidiarity, if you can push a decision down, if you can push a responsibility down to a low, lower level in the organization, that organization is going to function better, right? If all of our road paving was decided by Washington, D.C., rather than municipal or, or county level um, road commissions, there would be a pothole every 10 feet, right? Now, Michigan's not that much better than that, but that's due to other weather uh, components. The challenge is um, we've seen an overall trend towards nationalization at every level, regardless of whether or not a nationalization or federalization of that issue will ultimately be more functional. Um, and on everything from immigration to our healthcare, um, we need to realize that having this one size fits all policy, putting all our eggs in one policy bucket. Like, I'm pretty policy agnostic. I want what's going to actually work in the long term. So much of our politics is input oriented in terms of, well, how much money are we going to spend or what path are we going to go down rather than outcome oriented and saying, well, I don't care if we're spending more or less. Are we, I want to spend the right amount, right? I don't care which policy we take. I want to make sure it's the policy that drives towards this common outcome. Um, and put, having more, putting more burden on the states for those decisions um, within, within broad parameters that are set by the federal government, but allowing the states to experiment um, 
you know, that's ironically was one of the predecessors of Obamacare was um, Romney Care in Massachusetts, which came out of the Heritage Foundation, right? It was a, it was a right-leaning think tank. Um, the challenge is what may be a very good solution on a state-by-state -state basis so that they can find the right balance and experiment and compare and contrast and find best practices. When you blow that up at the federal level, you lose any ability to have any competition um, and not competition in a way that pin puts the healthcare consumer in the middle, but competition to say, okay, we're trying plan A, you're trying plan B. Oh, that's interesting. These elements of your plan are working well and we thought these elements of our plan wouldn't, why don't we swap it out? Right, get that that laboratory of um, of democracy, those test bed of democracy ideas um, that uh, shoot um, that Brandeis uh, was talking about at the beginning of twentieth century. It's all, it's all interwoven, is what I'm saying, Stefan. I I do have to cut down a couple questions here because our time is running short, but I do want to talk about the seat itself, the seat that you're running yes. for, because Michigan's third congressional district, as I was talking with Ms. Colton, your opponent, is a very important seat to have in the House. It's held currently by Justin Amash, who is a libertarian, and if elected, you will represent over 700,000 people from big cities to small farms. Um... Before we talk about what you would do in the seat, I want to talk about how you feel Justin Mosh has performed in the seat. Because Justin Mosh obviously didn't run for re-election, which allows us to kind of wrap his term up into a nice little bow and examine it as one thing. Of his time in office, do you believe he served the people of Michigan's 3rd Congressional District well? And is there a specific accomplishment you can name that you agree with? Mm -hmm. I, I would say so. I mean, we obviously have our policy differences. We have our stylistic differences, but I think he's a, uh, he's an honorable individual, um, a principled individual that I think was doing at every turn what he thought was best. Um, you know, I would say looking to a specific accomplishment, I really respect some of the work he did around protecting civil liberties. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. He, was you know one of the founders of, of the Freedom Caucus. He was he kind of came in on that Tea Party wave very early on, um, and in, in a lot of ways, there's a, a fascinating arc in that you know ten year evolution of of just where the country and where our politics have gone. Um, you know, I think we we see eye to eye when it comes to the need to end our wars overseas. That's something I'm very passionate about and that you, know, you haven't brought up um, President Trump in this interview. Um, and I, and I, that, that's good. Whenever something starts with federalizing or nationalizing an issue, it's like, let's bring it back down local. Um, but when it comes to when it comes to that, I mean, that's something that um, I, I get frustrated that for many Americans, they don't care that we have troops dying overseas. They don't care that we're engaged in military actions that's killing um, civilians. Um, they don't care that we're undertaking, you know, military adventurism that's undermining our national security. Uh, but Justin did, uh, and I give him a lot of credit for that. Um, again, on the civil liberties front, that's an area that, the, that both parties have shown a bias towards government surveillance, a bias towards government control. Um, and that, that deeply worries me. So he was a very principled objector when it came to looking out for um, the civil liberties of all Americans, especially against um, elements like the Patriot Act and some forms of, of FISA 
uh, reform and, and NSA and, and FBI um, permission structures to surveil Americans. Um, you know, where, where I think there's definitely some room for improvement is also on, you know, I think he, he identified and diagnosed a lot of things that need to be improved um, in terms of uh, congressional reforms at the procedural level, uh, whether that's the influence of the body or membership as a whole relative to um, their party leadership. That's obviously something that has gotten way out of whack. Uh, whether it's how committee structures choose their members or choose their leadership, that's also tended towards centralization and, and hierarchy and, and top-down organization rather than bottom-up. Um, I think there's a, a lot of room for improvement on that. I, I would say my way of going about making some of those reforms would be less outside-in than inside-out. Um, it's wanting to make sure that West Michigan has a seat at the table, that we are making um, we're making the arguments that we need to be making, but we are uh, speaking from more of a position of strength. And I think it's those are easier reforms to try to implement um, if they're not coming at the expense of current leadership, um, but something that you're working with um, you know, party leadership of the moment on, on things that will be more long-term oriented. Um, so I want to give you a little bit of time. This isn't really a question just for you to give a statement. What would you do in this office? Um, and, and what do you feel you would be able to accomplish more than your opponent? I mean, again, um, by, I would say on, on policy background, that's where we have um, a, a pretty, a pretty strong difference. I, I didn't mention early on, but I, I cut my policy, my, my legislative chops working on veteran education advocacy, uh, on helping pass the post 9-11 GI Bill back in 2008. I testified before congressional committees on veteran legislation. Um, the organization that I last year stepped down as chairman of in order to run for this seat, uh, Student Veterans of America has been incredibly successful in getting a number of veteran stakeholders in the room to pass pieces of legislation. So in order to in figuring out how to deal with a highly dysfunctional environment and still get something done. I think one of the, um, the, the what we call the forever GI Bill, which was some, um, some revenue neutral reforms, the original post 9-11 GI Bill that we were able to pass, um, it, in like a four month stretch in Congress, it was the only piece of legislation that went through both houses with you know, huge bipartisan margins. Um, so I can get things done even when you know the deck is stacked against us, um, even when you know it looks like a hyper divided and and polarized scenario, um, you know her her policy experience is is more at the um, more. I'm not really sure the best way to to describe it, but it's as sort of a, a staff attorney, you know, political appointee, um, someone who's within a department, but you know, in a in more of an executing role. Um, rather than hitting upon elements of our, our legislative process. Um, and, and really, I think getting back to what I was saying earlier about that differentiation between inputs and outcomes, focusing on outcomes, focusing on ways we can make our legislative process more accountable in the long term, make our government more accountable in the long term, and not just accountable in terms of you know a, a vote up or a vote down or, um, or referendums or, or whatever. I mean, accountable in the sense of did, what you, did you do what you set out to do? State a goal, create a metric tool and, and a, a way of identifying 
how to quantify that goal. Give yourself a time period to evaluate it. And at the end of that time period, you know, either extend um, and or modify. Um, and that, that notion of, of sunset laws, that notion of, of longitudinal accountability from a legislative standpoint, our government simply doesn't have, and, and nobody really wants it because they'd rather just get their photo at the ribbon cutting or standing up on the dais, you know, announcing a piece of legislation um, and getting that media hit. You know, that's a lot more worthwhile to a member of Congress than actually the long-term impact of a program. Um, so that's something I don't think you get when you focus on top-down leadership and when you are just going to be more loyal to your party than anything else. Um, you know, I've had the same message from by the first days of our primary race through today. It's been almost a year and a half that I've been running for Congress here. Um, and we've been saying the same thing day in and day out. Um, my opponent didn't have to have a primary. She had her primary cleared away for her so that they didn't have to waste money, so that she didn't have to take tough stances and prove herself to uh, the Democratic primary field. Um, we didn't have that opportunity. You know, you want to know where I stand on any issue. I've probably talked about it. There's dozens of hours, there's forums, there's debates, there's interviews. Um, it's all out there. Um, there's town halls, there's uh, all sorts of, of areas. And so what we're focused on is not, you know, trying to sell one bill of goods and then, you know, switching it out at the end. It's, it's about consistency, it's about long-term leadership, and it's about bringing West Michigan back to a position of strong, stable, and effective representation like Paul Henry and Vern Ehlers um, brought to the seat, like Gerald Ford when this was the fifth district, like he brought from 1948 to 1973. You know, that's the legacy that I think West Michigan has put forth. And it's one uh, that I wish and am praying and planning to live up to. Uh, we could respond to a lot of the things that you've talked about and form branch out conversations for hours. We are yeah, four running more hours out of time. Huh? <laughs> you have four more hours? I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I got to get back to school after this. But uh, I do want to talk a little bit about, uh, you mentioned the post 9-11 GI Bill. What is that and and why should it matter to voters? Yeah, so um, in after World War II, or, or the post-World War II generation, uh, it had a, a, a GI Bill, which was a way of returning service members, of, of returning veterans um, to go to school. Um, it was, it, it gave rise to the middle class in this country. It helped make the U.S. a superpower. Um, the statistics on this are, there's, there's some questions on the white paper, but one estimate was that for every dollar put in on GI Bill funding, there was a $7 return to our gross domestic product. So the original World War II GI Bill was fantastic. When I was, um, uh, in the military early on and, and in the veterans community, we saw the returning generation of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, and there had been a residual GI Bill to help them you know, go to school after graduation, but it had been pegged to the overall cost, like a cost of living um, you know, basket of, of goods for inflation. It hadn't been pegged to education inflation. And so what would have originally covered you know, a, a full semester um, at, at most schools was only covering a couple of credit hours. Um, so what we did is we we stepped back and said, not only will this be a huge negative impact to the country if we have returning veterans who don't have onward opportunities for upward social mobility, um, but also that there's a tremendous amount of human capital that we can unlock with something like a new GI Bill. Uh, and so we were, despite the objections of, of President Bush at the time, despite the objections of, um, 
of the, the Pentagon, of, of the Republican members of, of Congress and the Senate. Um, and again, these were not principled objections. They were, it was, well, one side has put it forth, so we're just going to stand in the way. Um, despite that, we were able to get um, this bill passed. And, and so the, there were folks I went to school with um, who started before the post 9-11 GI Bill, and they left with, you know, six-figure college debt. Uh, folks that came after it had started were graduating debt-free. So it was a way for um, returning veterans to, to, re, uh, to re-enter society and to focus on how they can not only just re-enter society, but re-enter it in a way that they are, are equipped with the tools and, and the education in order to make best use um, of their innate you know, skills and ability, um, I think it's going to be transformational. It already has been. I, I've, I talk about it and I have people come up to me later saying the post 9-11 GI Bill changed my life. I wouldn't, I'm the first person in my college, I'm sorry, in my family to go to college. I'm the first person um, you know, that I knew to, to take advantage of this or somebody else did. And, and, it, and we don't imagine our lives ever being the same. You know, we're seeing career opportunities that we never saw otherwise. So I'm just, I'm a huge believer in unlocking human capital and unlocking that potential in, in providing upward social mobility uh, and removing some of those hurdles and barriers um, that prevent folks from reaching their potential. This is our, this is going to be our last question. Um, and for this question, I reached out to somebody who I feel d- deserves uh, to ask you a question. He's my government and economics teacher, uh, Thomas Peterson. And okay. he wanted to know, first off, I think we should lay out the fact that with Justin, uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett being confirmed, a lot of people tried to attack her for her faith. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't support that. I know you don't support that and your opponent doesn't support that. Um but this question kind of deals with a bit of your personal convictions. Um, how do your personal convictions shape the positions you choose to support? And what do you do if and when these convictions come into conflict with the stances of your party? So let me, let me answer the last question first. Um, you know, I would say one area where my personal faith conviction is at odds with where my party is on some issues is on the issue of the death penalty. Um, you know, I, I seek to practice and, and believe in a consistent life ethic that being pro-life um, and, and wanting the government to have a limited role also means that the government shouldn't be in the business of putting to death uh, people under its care and protection, uh, regardless of how heinous the crimes or, or how awful an individual um, that person may be. I don't think that is the government's right or responsibility. Um, and so to me, in terms of reconciling those differences, it's very clear. I say, I disagree. I'm not going to support this. I, I will support uh, initiatives to end um, the federal death penalty, period. Um, so to me, it's not a, uh, it's, there's not a lot of gnashing of, of teeth on, on what, um, uh, where those areas come into into divergence. It's, it's pretty plain, clear, and simple. Um, and I also believe, I mean, I was starting to mention these that notion of gratitude early on uh, for what we've inherited for that, that bounty we've inherited and that can go back to Genesis. Um, but that sense of, of protecting the environment of dealing with the climate crisis of not just, you know, um, plugging our ears or burying our head in the sand, but facing reality as it is today, rather than as we wish it to be. Um, so that's another area where I have no issue um, pushing back against my party when I feel they're not taking the action that's appropriate. 
Um, in, in terms of just the overall faith guiding, I, I find it difficult to separate, you know, what what is, how do I put this? I mean, when it when it's something that's very innate and in, in, ingrained within you, you, you can't, you can't necessarily separate out and be like, well, I think this because of my religion, but I think this because of something else. I mean, to me, it is it is all it is all dovetailed. Um, you know, I'm I don't have I mean, I have an American flag in the background, but I don't have you know I'm not driving around or pickup truck with big American flags on the side and and American flags kind of hanging out the top and and sort of every patriotic bumper sticker um, because things that are to me very deep and, and personal. Um, I feel like the more I, a faith is anyone who is so certain in their faith to go out and um, and, and say that they have it all figured out. Um, in my experience, have oftentimes um, spoken with a degree of, of hubris and arrogance that I think is not consistent with some of my uh, faith principles. Um, but at the same time, it's something that to me, like lives in my heart and not on my sleeve, if that makes sense. Um, you know, where the more, uh, I, I hope it, it comes through in my actions and, and the life I've led, led and the, the service orientation. Um, and in that sense of living the fruits of the spirit, rather than, um, you know, being the type of person who wants to sit in the front row at church so that everybody, you know, can see zero in attendance. Uh, that's where I, I kind of come down. I'm happy to go into more specifics, but I mean, to me, it's just so part and parcel of, of who I am that it's hard to disentangle. Um, but I think it's important for any uh, anyone seeking office. And, and to the earlier point, I, I think religious tests are profoundly un-American. Uh, I think deciding who to vote for or making a qualification for public office, um, someone's faith flies in the face of the First Amendment among any, and that's, we're obviously talking about individuals' preferences, but, um, you know, I, I agree on both the religious attacks on, on Amy Coney Barrett, on now Justice Barrett, um, as, as abhorrent, it'd be as abhorrent um, if it were occurring against any other person of faith, regardless of, of what their faith may be. Um, and, and to me, it, your faith should be something that shines through in the way you live your life, rather than some litmus test uh, that we apply um, uh, in our political system. I just, I think that that leads us down a very, a very troublesome path and a very un-American path. Peter Meyer, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for agreeing to do this. Um, best of luck to you on November 3rd. Saban, I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Cutthroat American High School Politics is an independent podcast, so we don't make money. So please listen. I want to thank Mr. Lawton, Alex Lawton, for letting me skip class today to record the interview. And I want to thank, of course, Peter Meyer for being in the interview. I wish him the best of luck on November 3rd.